Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. President Trump uh, talked about you last night. Uh, let me read what he said at his rally in Pennsylvania. He was, uh, was talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger failed when he did the show. He was talking about The Apprentice, and he was a movie star. So he, he likes to talk about you. What's your current thought on him? Well, first of all, I think it's very nice to call me a movie star. <laughs> so that's, that's very nice. But, you know, I, I really never know exactly why the Russians make him say certain things. I mean, uh... Here's the episode we've been talking about, our live interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger, recorded Sunday at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. There's a lot to hear in this one, so I'll keep the introduction short. It was the two of us on stage talking about President Trump, environmentalism, the Me Too movement, and more. He had a lot to say, and actually a lot of jokes to crack. But as I told the audience there, I couldn't think of a better person for that crowd to talk about the collision of politics and entertainment and craziness that we're all living through and how to maybe make more sense of it going forward. So, Zach and I headed down to Austin, and in a room of about a thousand people, the governor and I went through a lot. I know we had him on last summer, but he seemed worth going another round with. Hope you'll agree. And you'll also hear some of the audience questions that came up along the way, down to his favorite kind of dessert and his future political plans. Remember to subscribe. Coming up, a killer group of conversations with Texas Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke, Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Roseo, Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs, Congressman Matt Gates, and many more. Follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at Isaac Dover. And if you scroll back on Twitter, you'll be able to see the photo I talked about on stage and tweeted from on stage of me and Schwarzenegger at the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum in Austria when we were there together last fall. And now, live from the South by Southwest stage. We had a podcast last summer with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I thought who would be better to be here today with us than uh, the governor. I will tell you that my own... I, people say, like, oh, he needs no introduction. He doesn't really need an introduction, right? Uh, that's why you're all here. <laughs> My own experiences with him include a uh, podcast that, like I said, that we did where he commandeered a room in a, a committee room on Capitol Hill and said, this is where we're doing it. Uh, with no, we didn't tell the guards or anyone else. Uh, we ended up in Oktoberfest together in Munich last uh, September. Um, <laughs> For, uh, well, I was working on an article about all the causes that he is uh, focusing on in his post-political life. And then uh, I saw him uh, a couple months ago on the steps of the Supreme Court talking about gerrymandering after there was the big case argued there. And of course, he told a Terminator joke and looked right at the Capitol and told one of his favorite lines, which is that uh, syphilis has a better approval rating than Congress right now. Uh, so... <laughs> We've got some things to talk about. Uh, and with that, I'll just welcome uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger to the stage. <laughs> Sir? All right. So, uh, let's... First of, first of all, yeah. Isaac, uh, just wanted to say... It was not syphilis, it was uh, herpes. Herpes, I'm yeah, sorry. It was herpes. You know, because Where is syphilis rate? Well, syphilis is even lower. Okay. Uh, <laughs> much lower than Congress. I mean, it's, I just, I'm sorry. Uh, one of them, I got my venereal diseases okay. mixed up. Um, <laughs> let's, let's just get it out of the way. Uh, President Trump uh, talked about you last night. Uh, let me read what he said at his rally in Pennsylvania. He was just sort of as an aside. Uh, was talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger failed when he did the show. He was talking about The Apprentice, and he was a movie star. So he, he likes to talk about you. What's your current thought on him? Well, first of all, 
I think it's very nice to call me a movie star. <laughs> so that's, that's very nice. But, you know, I, I really never know exactly why the Russians make him say certain things. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's beyond me. And uh, why he would even think about those kind of things is also beyond me, because, I mean, he's supposed to be very busy. I mean, he promised the people to do infrastructure. We have launched now the third or the fourth week infrastructure, and then he gets always in his own way. Four, yeah, and then, uh, you know, he talked about healthcare reform, he talked about immigration reform, and there's so many kind of issues that need to be addressed that he's not addressing, but he's thinking more about those kind of things, you know. So, and plus, let's be honest, I mean, he also promised us to train the swamp. Right? Yeah. I mean, it just, uh, so what happened? I mean, here's, it's, everything goes on as usual now in Washington. I mean, people are spending more and more of the taxpayers' money, millions of dollars, sec secretaries of various different departments, uh, uh, spending, you know, millions of dollars. Some of them are caught flying with a, uh, with a private plane and others are caught, you know, spending, you know, $31,000 of getting a new dining room uh, set. Uh, in their office, and then the secretary, of, the secretary of the Interior, has been caught with uh, spending 139 thousand dollars on a new door. Well, doors are important. So yeah, of course they're important. But I think the guy's confused. He thinks instead of being the secretary of the Interior, he thinks it's the secretary of Interior Design or something like that. <laughs> I mean, there's just something yeah, off there. Like but in any case, my my <laughs> my office still stands to Donald Trump. And that is, you know, if you're such an expert in TV. Why don't we switch jobs? He takes on the job and goes back to Celebrity Apprentice, and I go and take his job, and then people will finally be able to well, sleep. I feel like maybe we'll come back and talk again. <laughs> you, you, he likes attacking you, but you, are, you, don't, you have uh, an approach where you don't want to engage with him all the time. So t talk that through a little bit. Well, I'm not the shadow government or something like that. You know? so this is, uh, my, my thing is... Uh, I've always actually supported every president after they were elected. Because I believe very strongly after the people have spoken, we should support the president, even though I did not vote for Donald Trump. Um, in Who did you the, vote for? The, pardon me? Who did you vote for? I uh, voted for the opposite. <laughs> 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 but in any case, the bottom the line... Opposite Hillary Clinton? The, 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 the bottom line is... <laughs> That, <laughs> that I just feel like that after they're president, we should support them. If it is, was, uh, you know, it's Trump or if it is uh, Obama, if it is Bush, it doesn't make any, who it is. And only when we are united and work together, we can be really a great nation. And uh, so this is what I still believe in the day. But there are certain issues uh, that are very, very dear to me and that I'm very sensitive about. Very sensitive about when it comes to politi the political system and that they have political reform, they have redistricting reform. So obviously, when he then says no, we shouldn't do redistricting reform, then I said to myself, what happened with this whole idea of training the swamp and, and switching things out and, 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 and improving things? Or, for instance, when he does tax reform and he gives billions and billions of dollars to people uh, that really don't need it, like I'm benefiting from his tax reform. But in the meantime, he's taking $1.2 billion away from children for after-school programs. So you don't want so the money? So of course, I, I don't need the money. I don't need the money. Keep it to the kids. The kids need the money. The money needs to be in the classroom. We need after-school programs because we've established the fact already, and this is something that I've been involved with for the last 25 years, that for every dollar we put into an after-school program, 
we get $3 back. We save $3. And this is why in California, Democrats have endorsed it, Republicans have endorsed it, and it has been extremely successful in California where every elementary and middle school has after-school programs. And so I'm fighting for that budget, so I will be going to Washington and will be lobbying Congress to make sure that they keep that money in and save those kids and keep them in after-school programs and, if possible, even increase the budget. The last time you saw President Trump directly was at a Wrestling Hall of Fame event, is that right? Well, uh, Donald Trump and I, we have run into each other many times, and we have actually been very friendly with yeah. each other and have been friends. Um, and, and, you know, we ran into, he was in the professional wrestling, and so was I. He's in the real estate, so was I. And all, so there was a lot of common interest, show business and so yeah. on and so forth. I think that our thing just crossed a little bit when he asked me to endorse him. <laughs> And I said, no, I said, because you don't believe that there's climate change and you don't believe that there's nine million people out there dying because of pollution. I think that you should really go and fight, you know, the fossil fuels and really create a clean and green energy future for our children and grandchildren. And uh, he didn't want to have any of it. And so, therefore, I, I said, you know, I cannot endorse you. I'm curious, one of the things that we've heard in the last couple of weeks in the response to the Parkland shooting is President Trump has talked a lot about violent movies and violent video games and that that's part of the solution here. You've been in a lot of violent movies. You've been in uh, video games, too. And it, you have disagreed with this in the past. Do you see any credibility to that argument that that's where we go in this conversation? No. I, I, well, first of all, I believe that we should look at everything whenever there's a problem like that. We should never close out anything. So, of course, they can look at you know, violent content in movies and video games and all that kind of stuff. I just always believed that you know, violence has been written about in books. And if you look at the Bible, there's the most violent book there is. And uh, in movies that they came about, I don't think this is really the thing that really contributes to the violence. It's just, it's just my personal opinion. I'm not an expert in that subject, but I think that we should address all the various different issues because it's inexcusable of what's going on today. Uh, but I think that also, and I'm very glad that the children are marching. I'm glad that the children are rising up and doing something about it. This is the greatest news that I've seen in a sense this happened. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like the children do not get represented in America. It doesn't matter which state capital it is, or if it is the federal government, children are always left behind. And so I thought that children should rise up already a long time ago when it comes to equal education in America. We don't have equal education. There's a lot of people that talk about it, but they don't really act out equal education. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't need affirmative action if everyone would get an equal start and the equal amount of attention. Every school gets the equal amount of money, has the equal amount of quality teachers and after-school programs and everything, the full attention. Then that is called equal education. I remember when I became governor in California, the first thing I had to do is, is settle a lawsuit with the ACLU because the Democrats in our state fought the ACLU. Because the ACLU said that California doesn't have really equal education. And uh, this, the Democrats said, and it was the state's position, that it's not our responsibility. But the fact is that it is our responsibility. And so when I came in, I settled the lawsuit, and we got billions of dollars to then contribute uh, to the various different schools that fell behind to give each school equal amount of uh, 
homework material and learning material and computers and uh, to, to, to fix the schools and so on. I mean, in some schools you go into, there's inner city schools where there's six or eight stalls, bathroom stalls that are closed and locked up for six months at a time. Right. It's crazy. That's not what you call equal education and well, equal opportunities. Let's talk a little bit about how you did things as governor uh, and, and what you think maybe can carry forward. Uh, one, it, it, we talked about this a little bit and, and, and you boiled it down to a couple principles. And so, so one of them uh, is uh, develop an inclusive team. Uh, and I don't want to spend all this time con contrasting you to President Trump, but just for the sake of this, we have in President Trump a, uh, a cabinet uh, that is all Republicans, uh, that uh, White House advisors, with a very few exceptions, are all Republicans, uh, largely white. Uh, all of the top cabinet officials are white men. Uh, why does that matter? He would tell you he's just hiring the best people, uh, and he's not getting caught up in the PC stuff that other people do. But you had a female Democrat as your chief of staff. Republicans were mad about that in California, and you, had, you spent a lot of time uh, on uh, diversity appointments. Well, I mean... Look, America is Democrats and Republicans and independents. So this is the whole pot. And I'm, I would say that America, without any doubt, is the smartest country in the world and the greatest country in the world, the best country in the world, and the strongest country in the world, and all of those kind of things. So if I would just hire now half of the people, just Republicans, then I would take the other half out of the ball game, and I only would play with a half a team. And I think that's not fair to the American people. But do you think it changes the way that you acted as governor? No, what it, what it means is that you've got to have the brain power of Democrats and Republicans and independents and of women and of men, and it doesn't matter what it is, you've got to have a nice, good mixture. You've got to be inclusive so that you really have the ultimate brain power represented here. And especially when you are uh, in a kind of a problem situation. Remember, when I took over as governor, uh, we just had the recall. Right. And, uh, that's how you got the, to be governor. That's right. <laughs> and Democrats and Republicans were fighting about every single thing. And nothing was getting done. And we had a huge budget deficit. We had the debt. We had everything that you can think of. Everything was wrong. So it was clear to me that, it was, that I wanted to go and to have a diverse group and not only deal with Republicans, but also with Democrats. And to bring them into the office, and this is uh, like uh, the team of rivals, like President Lincoln did that. You know, when he won, he realized that he didn't really have 50% of the votes, so he needed at least to, 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 to solidify the Republican Party and bring all of the people that criticized him and attacked him during the presidential campaign, uh, bring them in and make them part of the team. And I think that is very healthy to do, and I think that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring Democrats and Republicans, women, men, and every... And, of course, my Republican Party criticized me for that. I remember they asked me to come across the streets to the hotel, uh, where we always talked about politics, and because you couldn't do it in the Capitol. And they started attacking me and says, how could you dare have a female chief of staff that is from the Democratic Party, well, there, and she is also she a lesbian? A so which was the problem? Was a woman, a lesbian, or a Democrat? Which was Maybe for them it was all of them a problem. But I mean, the, the, the ones were screaming that she's a, a brawl burning, you know, lesbian from San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco oh, so, okay. was well, another problem, major problem. And, uh, 
And so I said, they attacked me about all of this kind of things. So I said, well, I said, I looked around and I said, well, I, I, I mean, I'm a little confused here. I said, I did not know that the Republican Party is in charge of staffing my office and hiring the people. And uh, they said, no, we are not. And they said, well, then don't tell me what to do. <laughs> why don't you just, why don't you, just uh, you know, figure out a way of making the Republican Party more popular in California so we that don't slip all worked, the time. Right? The Republican Party wasn't more popular in California. Well, it it's was slipping. It was, it, it was a very strong at one point, and then it was slipping because the Republican Party started getting away from the basic Republican principles and started to get more and more right-wing, which is, of course, leads us to the redistricting reform that I then went after. But, I mean, it was just, it was really unhealthy. Uh, they lost, you know, within a short period of time, a million women uh, in the Republican Party. And the reason was because women were very much into the environmental issues, into health care issues, into education issues. And the Republicans didn't talk about that yeah. and didn't address those issues. I wanted to address those issues. So I started grabbing them from the Democrats because I said to myself, this is ludicrous. The court is a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. This is a people's issue. So, so one, one of your other... Uh uh, principles of governing is no one gets a 10. Uh, so that's your art of the deal. Uh, what does that mean? Well, for instance, when we did healthcare reform uh, in California, we had all kinds of different uh, groups of people there. We had the doctors there, the nurses, the drug companies, the hospital association, the, the medical association. Cigarette companies. We had the right? consumer watchdogs, the cigarette companies. Uh, the employees union. I mean, we had all of those different groups. So the, the room was packed with people. And I told him, I said, look, we can get healthcare reform done if we work very hard at it. I said, but the first and most important thing is, is that everyone has to be clear here that no one will walk out of here with a 10. Because what is a 10 to the consumer groups will not be a 10 at all to the hospital association. Is and would not be attended to the drug companies and would not be attended to the medical association. So I said, you, if you're lucky, you end up all with a seven. I said, but if you're comfortable with that idea that we can settle with a seven, I said, that's the thought you have to go back with to your people and think about that. I said, if you're, if you're ready to go and settle for a seven, we can do it. Is that the problem in Washington? Everybody wants a 10? Well, I think it is a problem of leadership because I think you've got to really sit people down and you've got to explain this is how we can arrive with a great decision, but everyone has to give a certain amount in order to make this happen. Is that all on President Trump or are there other people who are No, no, I think in too? general, I think this is, look, you have to, it's a relationship building. It is, uh, you know, really having a very clear vision of where you want to go. You have to be able to bring people together. You have to bring people together that you may hate. Uh, if to bring people together from, from all the different parties and everything. And, um, and I think that we, for instance, uh, in California, we were very successful, except we were then on the end derailed because the Democrats, there was one Democratic senator that couldn't digest the idea that a Republican is going to get that victory of having uh, health care reform. And there was another senator, female senator, that wanted to have single payer. So she fought for single payer and wouldn't settle for anything else. So those were the two and groups of people that derailed it. In the, in the legislature, right? They passed it, it twice. It, it, it passed in the assembly, and it did not pass in the Senate, like I said, because they didn't want us to have that kind of a victory. And in the assembly since, uh, they've had Jerry Brown as governor, Democratic governor. Have they passed a single payer? No, of course not, because, you know, they sent me the single payer 
uh, legislation all the time and I vetoed it because it doesn't work. I mean, I've seen it in Europe. It doesn't work. And uh, that's just my opinion. You know, there's, there's others that are experts and they may disagree with that, which is perfectly fine, but I just think it didn't work and therefore I vetoed it. Now, since Jerry Brown is governor, the Democrats have never ever sent him a bill about single payer, so he doesn't have to veto it. I mean, it's so, sort of like politics. That's just we had it. 60 plus votes for repealing Obamacare when Barack Obama was president, and then just the one uh, House vote that failed, and the one that passed, and a Senate vote that failed, and then that's it. They've left it alone. It seems like a similar situation. Well, first of all, I can tell you President Trump would sign Obamacare repeal, it seems. It is a big mistake to try to do anything just on party line because it would never stick. Because then eventually the other party comes into power and they will undo everything. And this is the same if it is with, with, uh, with uh, Obamacare, if it is now with the tax yeah. uh, bill, uh, you know, all of those things that are just strictly voted on, on, uh, on party line will not stick and will not last a long time, nor do executive orders. I mean, the president can sign all the executive orders that they want. I mean, you saw what happened with Obama's executive orders. As soon as Trump came in, they were out yeah. the window. And as soon as Trump leaves office, they will be out the window, whatever he's signing right now. So I think that they, uh, this is kind of like the easier way out. I think the right way to do it is, is to bring Democrats and Republicans together and to solve problems together. That is really the way to do it. It's very difficult to do, but it's the only way to do it. You mentioned... You mentioned that you saw the way the healthcare system worked in Austria. When we, we talked uh, for that podcast last summer, actually, you described that you feel like you have an American Arnold on one shoulder and an Austrian Arnold on the other shoulder. Can you explain what it is that you meant by that? Well, um, they were always fighting, right? Well, people, uh, it's very important to, to, to explain also why people were talking about that. And we were talking about it because we were having a schmoozing fest. <laughs> And uh, we were talking, and you were asking I don't think me, I've ever heard anybody use Yiddish words as much as you, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why not, right? <laughs> I'm so, okay with it. But, I mean, so the, the thing was, we, we, we were just, you know, gibbetsing around. Yeah. And <laughs> Keep going, come on. <laughs> I feel like and, we're going to have uh, a on the roof production. And, but. <laughs> and, and, and you said to me, is this, you know, it's interesting, because a lot of people say that you are just a Republican, but name only. Yeah. Uh, or they were confused because sometimes you had the democratic idea and then sometimes it was a republican idea. How did you justify it for that and how do you, do you explain that? That's when I said to Isaac, I said, boy, I think what they forget is that I was born in Austria and I grew up in Austria. So that you have still an Austrian mentality mixed in with the American mentality. So that on one side is kind of the Austrian here, and on the other side is the American here. And they argue and fight all the time. So before I ever get in the room and have any battles with people and arguments about various different issues, I have my own battles. And so there's the Austrian and then the American. And so when it comes to, for instance, healthcare, that everyone is insured, that was my first question when I became governor. I said, this is ludicrous that we have almost six million people in California in the richest state in the union and the number one place in the world, six million people uninsured. Why is that? Let's fix it. We got to have everyone insured. And then all of a sudden, you know, people kept coming to me and saying, you know, you're not just bipartisan, you're bipolar. And, they, and, and you know, and, and, and there were Republicans that were accusing me of that. And this were really nice 
people and everything. They were very helpful when I was right. campaigning and then many other issues, but they just hated the idea for me to do anything to talk about universal health care. Well, and let's, I tried to tell people, I said, look, Teddy Roosevelt more than 100 years ago talked already about you know, universal health care. Uh, President Nixon tried to actually have health care reform in the 70s. He's a Republican. It's okay. It's a people's issue. It's not a Republican issue. But this was basically the Austrians speaking rather than I flipped and became a Democrat. So that's the issue that I'm talking you about. You mentioned Teddy Roosevelt. One of the other things, this is the way you put it, uh, sort of an interpretation of uh, Roosevelt, uh, that you should uh, use the carrot but have the stick ready. So uh, tell me what you mean by that. The, 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 the example that I was thinking of is when you would, uh, when you were doing the, the uh, workers' comp, I think it was, right? When you were uh, well, arguing, the, telling them that you would have a ballot initiative, right? Uh, if they didn't negotiate with you and started gathering signatures. One of the first things, one of the biggest problems that they had for businesses in California when I became governor was that the workers' comp costs were increasing every year by 30, 40%, and businesses were literally kind of been driven out of the state. They couldn't do business in California anymore. And so what I did was I promised the people that if they elect me governor, that I will go back and I will reform the system in such a way that we will lower the costs. We will lower the costs by at least 50%. I became governor and we started negotiating, and of course the negotiations didn't really go that well in the beginning. The way it looked was that it would create 20% savings, but not the 15% say the 50% savings. So I went out simultaneously and started gathering signatures for a ballot initiative to put them that fall uh, on the ballot. And so each time as we were negotiating, I brought 10,000 or 20,000 more signatures to the table. And each time I brought more signatures to the table, we got more and more points that they would agree to. And eventually, when I had a million signatures, so this is approximately what you need, because you have to then discount and figure out that probably 250,000 are not good, and but you need, the, so it's to, let's say, the 780. Uh, so we have enough, so I put this there, and I say to them uh, during the negotiations, I have now a million signatures, and within one week, I will make the decision if we go on a ballot or not. And did it and work? So this was kind of the stick idea. Yeah. And it totally worked because they agreed then to the rest of the points. They didn't want to go to the ballot because that meant that they would have, the, the costs would have been cut even more than 50%. It ended up actually within a year after it passing, we cut the costs by 62%, the workers' comp costs. And we saved over $70 billion over a period of several years uh, to business in California. So businesses stayed in California because of that, and it was really a very, very successful thing. But it was but a perfect example of, of the, the carrot pulpit, and the right? That's state. another thing that you think about a lot here, is, is how to use the bully pulpit, how to make a, a bring the, the show into politics, right, in a real way. Well, the bully pulpit, you know, for me was always kind of like everything. I mean, well, I'm yeah. a big, big believer in that. <laughs> I don't think anybody <laughs> picked up on the fact. <laughs> <laughs> no, but even, even when you think about in bodybuilding, there was no one really able to promote the sport of bodybuilding. But when I came on the scene and I became Mr. Olympian, Mr. Universe and all this, I went out there and I really spoke out about bodybuilding, the benefits of bodybuilding, why every athlete ought to do weight resistance training and why the schools should have it and why the universities should have it and why it is a healthy thing to do in order. And so it was a lot of work that needed to be done. 
but we eventually turned it around and bodybuilding became a very popular activity and now everyone is training and every uh, hotel in the world has a bodybuilding gym, a weight resistance gym and a cardio gym and all those kind of things. I want to ask you, when, when we were in Europe together uh, last fall, uh, you ended up deciding that we needed to go to the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum. Uh, which is a thing. Um, uh, and it's in the house that you grew up in, which is in the hills uh, outside of the city of Tal in Austria. Uh, and I said to you there, uh, so what is it like to have your own museum? And you said to me, I don't think about it. And I said, what does that mean? And you said, to me, it's like everybody has their own museum. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Does anybody here have their own museum? <laughs> Can you just explain what you mean by that? And while you do it, I'm just uh, I'm going to tweet a photo. So we didn't know how to get it up on the screen in a way th that would work out exactly. So I'm going to tweet a photo from my Twitter account of us touring the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum uh, with the governor pointing to a mannequin of him in his bodybuilding days uh, that's in his par what was his parents' bedroom. So what is that? Everybody has a museum? Well, no. <laughs> not everyone has a museum. I just think of it that way. <laughs> So which means that I take it not kind of like, wow, I have my own museum. I mean, what it basically is, is, is the place that I was born in and grew up in, in Austria, in a town called Tal, T-H-A-L, um, uh, they so made this there. home basically kind of into a museum yeah. where they put my original weights that they used when I was 15 years old, where they used some of my props in movies, that they have the original desk there from my governorship. In Sacramento, they have the original motorcycle from Terminator 2, and they have all kinds of different things in films and videos and documentaries and all that stuff. So it's a wonderful place to go through, and it gets, uh, you know, a few hundred people coming there every, every week, and uh, schools coming there, kids as a motivational thing. And so, but I don't, I don't, what I'm saying is, I don't go home in the same and say, wow, I have my own museum. I never really, I never really think about it. That's about my, but I go there all the time and visit it, and, uh, they always like to see me there when I go to Graz they were very or when I go excited. to Vienna to yeah. go there. And, you know, as you have seen, you know, the, the mayor there of Tal, he's very excited about it. And the <laughs> governor is very excited about it. The president of, uh, of Austria came by, the, the chancellor of Austria. So they all come there and they make events out of it and we create events there for various different people. I want to ask you about uh, maybe a little bit less of a comfortable topic. We've been talking about your time as governor. When you were running initially in 2003, this is 15 years ago, right? Uh, towards the end of the campaign, there were some women who spoke out about behavior of yours uh, that uh, they called offensive. You apologized for it uh, and said you didn't mean to offend. But obviously, not only is it 15 years ago, but it's the last six months have really changed the conversation that we're having about what's going on. What, what is the difference between that moment and now? Well, I think that, first of all, the, the movement that you're talking about, the Me Too movement, it is about time. I think it's fantastic. I think that women have been used and abused and uh, treated horribly for too long. And uh, I think that now all of the elements came together to create this movement and it now finally puts the spotlight on this issue and I hope that a lot of people learn from that. And I remember that when I, for instance, when this happened to me just before the election uh, with the groping charges, 
Um, I realized, you know, even though you say this was very politically motivated, it was just the day before or two days before the election and all this stuff. But the fact of the matter is you got to take this thing seriously because you got to look at it and say, okay, I made mistakes and I have to apologize. And this is why the first thing that I did when I became governor was that we had a sexual harassment class. Because I said to myself, this is extremely important of an issue. And now we are representing the people of California, so no one should get into this kind of trouble. No one. And so we had these people come in as experts. And it was really the most unbelievable education. And I recommend for anyone that is confused about this issue after all of these complaints that women have and the outcry of women, I would suggest to everyone, if you're still confused about it, that women are not treated the right way, to go and to take one of those classes. Because when we took this class and the guy walked in, it was two women and two guys that were holding this class, and they said, let me just open up and just say very simply, if a woman comes to sit this door, and you governor say to her, I love your beautiful red dress, she can take this as sexual harassment. As it made you and, rethink and, and your so own. So here's the important thing that he said, but if you go at the same breath and say to the man, I like your green tie, he says, then it wouldn't be. So there were so many subtle kind of things that you needed to know that you would make mistakes. And the entire time that we were in office, we never had one single problem because we had those sexual harassment classes on an ongoing basis. To Has it just made you rethink everyone. your own things that you did, even in the last couple months? No, I just, I just think that we make mistakes, we don't take it seriously, but then when you then really think about it, you say to yourself, yeah, maybe there was, I went too far. You know, if you do sex scenes in a, in a movie, you know, uh, scenes in bed, if you're in the gymnasium and you teach someone how to train and you maybe touch them in an appropriate way or, or say, whatever it is, you realize you got to be very sensitive about it and you got to think the way women feel. And if they feel uncomfortable, then you did not do the right thing and you got to be th sensitive about that. And, and so, it, it, just, it just made me think totally differently. And then when this whole spotlight came about and the spotlight was put on this issue, you know, I could, uh, I, I said to myself, you know, finally, because I think that it is really good that now the spotlight is on it. It is no different than the spotlight was on it, like on, a, um, in a, on equality in America, um, you know, in the 60s, uh, or if it is about environmental issues, where you talk and talk and talk about it, but then finally it clicks and people realize, I mean, for how long, I said, for how long have I thrown things out of the window when I was a kid? And then eventually the spotlight was put on it and it made you feel bad that you're doing the wrong thing. And now it's the thinking about it and you never do it again. So I think this is going to put the spotlight on it to such an extent that guys are going to think twice about it to make those mistakes. And I think that everyone should take a sexual harassment class because we got to go and not ever do those kind of things. Is the problem worse in politics or in Hollywood? I think it is across the board. I think it has nothing with Hollywood. It has nothing with politics. It can be somewhere at the factory. It can be in the military. It can be anywhere. Uh, this abuse and this kind of uh, where guys flex their muscles and use their power in order to get certain things. And I, th I just don't think it is right. And I think this is why it's good that women are letting their voice be heard. 
Uh, towards the end of his time as president, Bill Clinton wrote you a letter, and at the end of the letter, he said to you that you should think about becoming a Democrat. Uh, he didn't take your advice. <laughs> or rather, you didn't take his advice. Uh, you have been elected as a Republican. You have problems with the Republican Party. Are you a Republican for life? Have you thought of, uh, the, the Republican Party is changing every day. It's becoming President Trump's party uh, in, in the way that most of the people in it are acting. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, Bill Clinton um, wrote me this nice letter, and, uh, you know, I would write the same to him, <laughs> you know, and say, <laughs> we should become a Republican. And, and and a lot of people thought so. In, uh, you still when have he that was, letter? When he was pretty, I still have the letter. Yeah. Where is it? It's still hanging in my house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's a fun letter because uh, you know I was kind of like, um, you know, supporting him on some of the issues, and I think he appreciated it and wrote me a letter. Uh, but the bottom line is, is I'm a Republican, and I'm a true Republican. And I always will be a Republican. I will never leave the Republican Party. Because the Republican Party is a fantastic party, except it has veered off to the right. And in some strange land. And um, I, if, if you think about myself as a Republican, I think about yesterday I saw the movie Lincoln. That you was directed it? by Spielberg. You <laughs> just saw Lincoln? Yeah, and what, the second time. Okay. Actually, the third time. You so have a giant friends, Lincoln bust outside here. I have uh, several Lincoln yeah. stuff all, all over the, the house. Uh, I just, but I mean, I, I, I just think that uh, after I came over here, uh, you know, I learned about Lincoln and the kind of things that he did, what a powerful president he was, and about, you know, freeing the slaves. And the, the, this was the Republican Party I'm talking about, is the ones that voted for freeing the slaves, the ones that voted that they should become U.S. citizens, the, the ones that voted overwhelmingly to have voting right, and on and on and on. So that's the Republican Party. Or Ronald Reagan, I remember when I came to America, and he created the Air Resources Board in California because we had so much smog. And he wanted to get rid of the smog. He was upset about the smog. He didn't look at it as a Republican issue, Democratic issue. He created the air resources, but that we are using now, today, in order to lower our greenhouse gases by 25% and accomplish but all so of our goals. Let me just uh, finish for a second. The, the President Nixon, who did universal health care and wanted to uh, reform that, who created the EPA as a Republican. Uh, President Reagan, who dealt with the, uh, the acid rain and did the Montreal Protocol, all environmental issues. Uh, President Bush, with the, with the, with the acid rain, uh, you know, made the agreement, international agreement, and then he had cap and trade. So the list goes on and on of great work that was done by Republicans. But today, those are all things that are absolutely a no-no in the Republican Party. So it's, I didn't change. It's the Republican Party that has changed. And now we have to work very hard to get the party back again of where it was because in California, for instance, I told them 11 years ago uh, that they're losing at the box office. That they're wiping out, dying, the, at, the dying at the box office. <laughs> and, um, and they were very upset about it. Yeah. And sure enough, at that point, they had like 34% we had Republicans. Now we have only 26% of Republicans in California. So it just shows you that it's literally dying. And it is because they're stuck with an ideology that doesn't fit anymore to what really people want. If you think about it, that only 20 Seven percent or so of, of, of Californians say the Republican Party is on the right track. Even amongst the Republican Party, Republicans in California, 
60% of them say it's okay, and 40% say, no, it's going off in the, in the wrong direction. So, I mean, would you get involved there's something in campaign? Wrong. You're pretty much done with politics. Would you campaign in 2020 mm-hmm. against no. this strain in the Republican Party, against President Trump? No, we Trump? have to fix the system. We have a, a, a press event uh, in, in Los Angeles together with the Republicans that the more moderate Republicans or true Republicans, and we're going to talk about that, the new way to go as a Republican, because the Republicans that are really the new thinking Republicans in California want to work together with the Democrats in order to get things done for the state and for the people, because ultimately, I always tell every politician, ultimately, you are a public servant, not a party servant. You uh, have been talking to John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, who ran against President Trump in 16. Uh, you think he should run for president? Should he run as a, a Republican or should he run as an independent? No, I think that uh, John Kasich should run as a Republican. He's a great Republican. He's fantastic. The job he's doing in Ohio, he was one of the best governors of all times. And when he was in Congress, he was the one that really negotiated and worked out the budget uh, with the Clinton administration so they get rid of the deficit and the debt. And may I remind you, I, I mean, it just shows you about how important it is to really meet in the middle and to be able to go and work with Democrats and Republicans. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan was a master in that with Tip O'Neill. When Tip O'Neill was the speaker, they met after five o'clock and they had the drink and they, they, they talked right. and uh, they worked things out. Democrats and Republicans worked things out. And it was the parties. most unbelievable progress during the 80s. And the same thing happened during the 90s with the Clinton administration when Clinton was forced into listening and working with the Republicans because they won the House and the Senate in 1994. So there was Clinton being the Democrat in the White House. He had to work with the Republicans, uh, which then they called uh, triangulation, right. when uh, he said, OK, fine, I'm going to take an idea from the Republicans, from the uh, Democrats, and I meet in the middle, and I'm going to declare now victory on that. So he came out in his State of the Union address and said that, that the era of big government is over. Right. So the Democrats looked at him and said, oh my god, this is like a Republican talking. <laughs> but he was very smart. And that's what you need to do. You've got to go and work with Democrats and Republicans to make the action happen. And he was an expert in that too. So Ronald Reagan, him, were absolute experts in working together with both of the parties. I wanted to ask two more questions and get to the audience questions. Um, oh, do this? Oh, okay. Uh, You've got an, an environmental conference coming up in Vienna in May. Uh, is, that, is that the extent of your environmental involvement at this point? Are you going to be doing more than convening people? Uh, what does it look like now? Well, in Vienna, the, the conference is all about putting the spotlight on this issue of the environment. So I believe, just like in the promotion of fitness uh, and bodybuilding, that the more often you talk about it, and the more you go around the world and explain to people what it is, the more they start taking it seriously and the more knowledge there is out there. And so what this is basically, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a partnership with the R20, which is my environmental organization that I've created after I became governor uh, and after I finished actually the governorship and uh, with the Austrian government. The idea is because Austria is really extraordinarily good with the environment. And I said, why don't we do that? California is like number one with environmental issues. Austria is leading. In, in Europe, why don't we form a partnership between California and Austria? And so this is what this is about, is uh, to help uh, the UN and to help the International Treaty, COP21, which is the international agreement of all the countries 
to go and to reduce greenhouse gases all over the world. And I think it's just a very, very important thing to do. And um, I think it is also important that for people to really focus on that issue, because this is no different than the smoking issue. Uh, the tobacco industry knew for years and years and years and decades that smoking would harm people, would kill people, would create cancer, and they were hiding that fact from the people and denied it. And then eventually they were taken to court and they had to pay hundreds of billions of dollars because of that. Because they knew. So and so the same you... thing is now with the oil companies. The oil companies, because people don't know that, but the oil companies knew from 1959 on, they did their own study and knew there will be global warming and climate change happening because of fossil fuels. And on top of it, it will be risky for people's lives. That it will kill people and they will get cancer and all this. All of this stuff, the oil companies knew. And they kept hiding it from the people. This is why we are now uh, talking to law firms to go and do exactly the same thing as they've done in the tobacco industry, where we sue the oil companies for knowingly killing people all over the world. There's seven to nine million people dying every year because of pollution, because of fossil fuels. That's some big news. You're going to, you're going to back uh, class action suits against... We're going to go after them and we're going to be in there like an Alabama tick. That I can promise you. Because to me, it is absolutely irresponsible to know that your product is killing people and to not have a warning label on it like they do in tobacco. They had to settle and they had to put a warning label on it. If you smoke, it will kill you. If you smoke, you will get cancer. It has a warning label. Every gas station should have a warning label on it. Every car should have a warning label. Every product that has fossil fuels in it should have a warning label on it. We should let people know so they understand that this is bad and they can go to an alternative route, which is to go to a combustion engine. This is a hydrogen engine or to electric cars or hybrid cars or something that will reduce the pollution in America and around the world. So when do you expect to file? Well, we don't know yet exactly, and we don't want to signal our moves, <laughs> but I mean, uh, one thing I can tell you, this is exactly what's going to come, because um, I don't think there's any different that if you walk into a room and you know you're going to kill someone, it's first-degree murder. I think it's the same thing with the, with, the, with the oil companies. They know they're killing people, and they continue doing the same thing over and over and, 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 and selling it. So... I think something needs to be done about it. All right, let's end on, and then we're going to go to the audience questions. Uh, the new Terminator movie starts uh, shooting over the summer. What can you tell us about it? Because well, I mean, it, it is kind of weird. This is, the, he was governor of California for seven years, and we're making another Terminator movie, right? <laughs> why is that weird? <laughs> I th you're, you're the only governor of California to, to star in a Terminator movie after leaving office. <laughs> I tell you, well, it's an interesting story because in this one, this just shows you how big Donald Trump is. Oh, yeah? He's a character? No, because, I mean, in the new Terminator movie, they wrote him in. Really? It's crazy, yeah, because the Terminator, the T-800 model that they play, he's traveling back in time to 2019 to get Trump out of prison. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like a really, a very, it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's an interesting story. <laughs> Do 
you asked for it. <laughs> you I know? did ask. Is there anything you can actually no, no, tell but, us about uh, the movie? Yeah, no. Uh, the, uh, the, all jokes aside, uh, the movie is going to start in June, and uh, we will be shooting in Spain and in Hungary, and it probably will, will take around four and a half months to shoot. I am still the T-800 model, the original uh, Terminator, and um, the movie will come out the following year in the summer, and I cannot tell you anything about the story or the storyline or anything like that because I'm strictly forbidden yes. to talk about that <laughs> by Jim Cameron himself. He says, we can this time, we cannot tell anyone anything. <laughs> I say, okay, that's fine. But I'm looking forward to it. And this is, I just want to say, this is the great thing about my life is that I go from, uh, you know, fighting for redistricting reform and get rid of gerrymandering to doing an environmental uh, event or coming from the Arnold Classic, uh, the biggest sports and fitness festival in the world that we have been organizing for the last 30 years, to doing an event right here and to do a Q&A here, then to go to a movie and to do Terminator. And we have just finished writing the script for Triplets, which is the, the sequel to Twins. Uh, that will be also... That uh, we will be doing also. Who's, who's the and third? Conan is Wait, being you, Eddie Murphy. Okay. Eddie Murphy is going to be the third one, <laughs> so you can imagine. Uh, exactly. Very funny. So there's something happened there with that uh, mixing of the sperm. But in any case, <laughs> but but in any case, then after that we do Conan, uh, the, you know, King Conan, yeah. which is also just being finished, uh, written. So this, uh, and then uh, of course the TV series Outrider. Uh, with Amazon, yeah. uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Also, that would be we will start doing that next year. So there's all of this. So I go from one to the next. So to, to the different kind of things, including I shouldn't forget that I just came from skiing from Sun Valley, That's which has arrived here. Right? Very, very important. Yeah, okay. Very important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I have a great life, and. Uh, <laughs> Let me ask you, there's an audience question up I here. It's a perfect segue. When you were a kid, was there one moment that started you on this journey? Was and the that's, one? that's from a, an anonymous person. But what was the question again? When you were a kid, was there one moment that started you on this journey? Well, there was a moment when we looked at a documentary, a black and white documentary about America. I was around 11 years old, 10, 11 years old, and uh, this changed my life. When I saw in this documentary the high-rises, when I saw the enormous bridges, the beautiful cars with the wings in the back, Hollywood and Bustle Beach and all of the kind of things, the beauty uh, of America, I said, what am I doing here? And from that point on, I had this urge to go to America. Well, let me combine that with another question that's up here. This is another anonymous question. Put your names on them. Come on. In a landscape of inequalities across America, is the American dream still possible? So combine that with the, the question that we were just asked. Uh, the American dream is alive. I've seen it firsthand when I came over here that if you're willing to work hard, if you're willing to educate yourself, um, then you can make it. And uh, the opportunities are here in America better than in any other place. I mean, I wouldn't have uh, done what I did if it is becoming a bodybuilding champion, getting in the movies, being a leading man in the movies, uh, becoming governor, my family, uh, everything that I've done, the amount of money that I've made, none of it would have been possible without coming to America. If I would have gone to Australia, it wouldn't have happened. If I would have gone to the Middle East, it wouldn't have happened. If I would have gone to Russia, it wouldn't have happened. Or to Africa, it wouldn't have Nowhere 
This is why I said earlier, America is without any doubt the greatest place in the world. Without any doubt. I mean, even today when we even th we always think about, oh, there's so much turmoil here and so many problems. So it's still the day when we travel around, when I go, if it's the Oktoberfest in, in, in Germany or if it is going anywhere in the world, people come up to me and say, oh, my big dream is to come to America. My big dream is to come to California. My big dream is to go to New York. Whatever it is, but it's to America. That's the big dream. Even the day everyone wants to come to America. So this is the greatest place. Yes, we have problems. We have problems, but what country doesn't have problems? You know, the bottom line is we are still by far number one. We are by far the best. That travel all over the world. So thank God we are in America. Let's ask, let's ask a more, uh, <laughs> more Austrian-centric. My, my German pronunciation is not great, so it's what is better. Do you want to read what those are? Kaiserschmann. Or oh, Apfelstrudel. Okay. Now, I couldn't do that. Um, uh, and people may not know, but you actually have quite a sweet tooth. Uh, so That's why don't right. you tell us what those apple strudel and what, what, I mean, what is I, I, Kaiser I, I, cannot, uh, I cannot really say which one is better because they both <laughs> taste good, and I would go for both of them at the same time. So I, I would not choose for between one or the other. That's the I think Austrian it's crazy. Exactly. It's the Austrian, <laughs> the Austrian in me. So, I mean, my mother was a very good cook. And so she cooked the best Wiener Schnitzel and the best Kaiserschmarrn and the best Apfelstrudel and all that stuff she did. For, and when she came to America, when I moved to America, she came over and visited me. She trained everyone always at the house how to make Kaiserschmarrn and the Apfelstrudel and all this. And Kaiserschmarrn is basically... like good training for a bodybuilder. Of course. <laughs> I mean, this is, there's eggs in it and, 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 and protein. I mean, good protein. I mean, but it's, it's delicious. And, and so Kaiserschmarrn... It means emperor's fluff, kind of. It's like a pancake cut up and made with eggs and flowers and, uh, and so on. So it, it's healthy, but it's also a little fattening, I would say. <laughs> that seems factually correct. Um, this is a good one to end on, maybe. Uh, it's, it's another anonymous question here, unfortunately. Come on, nobody wants to put their names on these. How do you train your mind? You are, uh, I think one of the things that struck me about you in conversations that we've had before today and today is that you are a little bit more of a wonk than people might guess the guy who uh, was Mr. Universe would be or uh, was best known for toting big guns around in the movies. So what do you do to, to keep up on this stuff? Well, I mean, uh, I think... You know, there's a lot of things, a lot of uh, kind of interests or talents uh, that we have that we don't even know. And so I was very fortunate to get involved in so many different issues. Like when I ran for governor, my wife always said to me, she says, you know, you're going to be so good in running because you're very competitive and you will figure out what will make you the winner. But... I can tell you, I come from a family of politicians <laughs> then sitting there and to actually work on a policy and having all these appointments and all this stuff, you would not like that. It would be very punishing. And, uh, you know, I said to myself, well, I'm worried about that when I get there. I said, right now it's all about <laughs> winning and, uh, and becoming governor. And so after I became governor, I started sitting down with my team and we started talking about, you know, solving the certain problems. And sometimes they saw me sitting there still at 12 o'clock at midnight with the gang trying to sort out things and figuring out how to solve a problem. And they, they, they looked at me and they said, well, what are you still doing here? When did you go to bed? I mean, let us work on it. I said, no, I said, I can't. I said, I want to go to bed. I said, but I find this fascinating. 
I've never even heard the stuff that I've been just learning sitting here with you guys. So, so I just talking to people I just, just from reading. Yeah, I just books. I just learn so much, and then you take home materials to read, special stuff that you read that that, that applies to that, and you start reading on it, and you start uh, you know doing research on it, and so on. So I became kind of a policy wonk, and really started getting into it. And myself being involved in getting really getting things done, and I think it was very helpful for me, and I think it was very helpful to show to the other legislators and to other people that I was interested in it in this in this various different subject. So it really helped me. So I think that mental stimulation was really terrific to work on environmental issues, to work on school issues, and prison issues, and infrastructure issues, and it goes back and forth. And at the same time, to work on you know. On, on movie issues and to work on fitness issues and so on. So I think it's really stimulating for the mind. It's great. And then also, of course, as you know, I'm a, I, I, I love playing chess, yes. which is another thing that keeps my mind always sharp <laughs> uh, to just, you know, play whenever I have a chance to do that. I have seen him hunched over a chessboard. It is not an image that you might expect, but it is for real. Uh, you, you apparently have won over some fans because there's a question here that I don't think we're going to get to about uh, wanting you to run for governor of Texas, move here uh, with all the other California who've moved to Austin, but uh, you're not biting. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very good. But, uh, but I think that Texas is doing really well. Texas, I just want to say that it's one of my favorite states, uh, always has been, because the Texans have this kind of a big mentality, big visions. Everything is big. When you look at their homes, their roads, their factories, their buildings, everything is big, 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 big. And so I just love that. And it's a wonderful and beautiful place, uh, just like California. I mean, there's a few states like that that are just extraordinary states, and Texas is one of them. And, uh, you know, this, this event here, South uh, Southwest, uh, is a, a perfect example your first of time thinking here, right? about this. The first time I've been here is a, a perfect example of how big they think and how big they make events. Uh, and uh, so congratulations to the great success of this. I'm sure the South by Southwest people won't mind you ending on a plug uh, for South by Southwest. <laughs> uh, uh, so that's, that's the, our conversation. I want to remind everybody, we're going to put this out on Tuesday morning as a podcast. Off message, please subscribe, tell your friends. Uh, you can see that picture of us at the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum together on my Twitter account at Isaac Dover. Arnold Schwarzenegger, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Isaac. After we finished, Schwarzenegger insisted that we go boot shopping together. I did not buy any. Actually, neither did he. But you can see the photos of that a little bit on Twitter, too. Thanks to Zach Stanton for producing. Remember to subscribe for all the conversations coming up. Pete Buttigieg, Ricardo Rizzo, Matt Gates, Jennifer Rubin, Michael Tubbs, many, many more. And catch you next time on Off Message. <laughs>